This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Gilbert Cruz, well, what to say about Gilbert? Well, he's the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Book Review. I guess editor, am I supposed to just call you the book's editor? Uh, no, you can call me the editor of the New York Times Book Review. I like the way that sounds. All right, excellent. Well, here's the thing. I know that you came to the Times as a TV editor, and I know you were also at New York Magazine's Vulture site as the editorial director. And that tells me two things about you. One, that story is really important because there isn't a TV person in the world who doesn't care about story first. And then also, Vulture has a really voicey presentation, right? So voice, story and voice. Those are the two things I'm pretty sure that you're reading for first. Am I right? I mean, if something doesn't have either of those, I have a hard time with it. So I certainly think that is the direction in which my my mind and my and my heart, my reading heart sort of uh, gravitate towards. Okay, cool. Because 2023 was a really good year for books, right? It was a really, really good year. You guys just released your top 10. We just did our books of the year finalists. We also picked an author of the year and book of the year. And there's some overlap between what you did and what we did in your notable hundred which is a list I always love to see. But I want to start with a couple of books that came out earlier in 2023 that you and I both quite liked. And I just sort of want to use that as like our measure before we start jumping into other stuff. Sure. Lone Women by Victor Laval mm-hmm. and Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton, both of which pubbed early in 23. So, you know, sometimes when stuff is pubbing earlier in the year, we get to this point and everyone's kind of like, oh, right. Was that this year? Was it last yeah. year? When? So I just want to talk about your love for those two books and why you were drawn to both of them. Sure. Well, I'll start with uh, Lone Women. I have, have been a fan of, of Victor for a while. And, and part of the reason is because he's a good writer. And part of the reason is because whether it's in books or in movies, uh, I like horror as a genre. Uh, and I always have from the time I was, you know, I was a little boy. And so, again, I gravitate towards that stuff. And uh, and the thing that appealed to me about Victor's book was the setting. There certainly are a, a bunch of of Western horror novels and movies and comic books, but you don't see them that much. And you don't. You certainly don't see them sort of written at the level at which Victor wrote his. For those who don't know, it is a a book about an African American woman who is living in the West. Uh, she is uh, living in in California, I believe. It's it's been many months since I read she it. She starts in California, but ends up in Wyoming. Or ends Montana. up in in Wyoming as a as a homesteader. So if you can go and you can claim a plot of land and you can settle it and and possibly make stuff grow on there, then then the land is yours. Which at that time, you know, holds holds great appeal, uh, certainly to people who would not uh, normally have all of the rights in in other communities. So she goes out there. Um, so it's a book that's set in in sort of the great open, windy, cold expanses of that area. But it's also a horror book, and there there's something in a chest that she has brought with her, a big steamer trunk. And you know that the thing that's in there is not good. Um, and when you finally discover what is in there, it both fulfills the novel's promise of being a, a, a horror novel, but it also injects this emotion into the piece that you certainly did not expect when you first, when I first started the book. I mean, one of the things I loved about it is Victor left New York finally. I mean, all of his books have been set in and around New York, and I was not expecting him to leave the city. But anytime someone takes on sort of this idea of the mythology of the American West, right, like the founding of America as we know, I did not know that 
there were homesteaders who were not white. I genuinely didn't, you know, Deadwood is Deadwood and whatnot. But at the same time, like to take an American story and give it that new slant. And also I'm not a big horror reader, but I actually don't think of Victor as a horror writer. Mm -hmm. I just think of him as a dude who plays with genre and likes to do something a little different and tell a story in a way that just really gets my attention. And I also think his dialogue is really snappy and sharp. And I need dialogue. Like, that's a thing. I am very much voice first. Like, if stuff Mm -hmm. happens, that's great. And I'm there. But I really kind of need the voice first. And if there's no voice, I'm kind of like, ah, thanks. Okay. There's something else waiting for me. Part of why I bring up the Eleanor Catton in concert with that, I mean, you could argue that she's doing something similarly with genre, right? She's playing with the conventions of genre. In some ways, it's a little bit of a horror story. It's just presented differently. Not to spoil what happens, but there Mm -hmm. are definitely some horrific things uh, that happen towards the end. But how did you come to Burnham Wood? I mean, Eleanor, of course, we were all excited waiting for this book and everything else, but you guys get a lot of books crossing your desk the way I get a lot of books crossing mine. Like, how do you pick something like Burnham Wood? And Burnham Wood, obviously, a title is a play on Shakespeare and all of this, but how does that end up making the cut? Well, so there's the question of how how we pick stuff at the book review, and then there's the question of how I uh, pick stuff. And so we have a ton of editors here who are reading, as 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 do you at, at BNN and, and other publications, months ahead of time to figure out what we should cover, what we should not cover. If we're going to cover a book, who should cover that book? Uh, we also have uh, these wonderful staff critics here at the book review, Dwight Garner, Jen Zalai, Molly Young, Alexandra Jacobs. And, and Dwight wrote quite, quite positively about Burnham Wood. And he still maintains, you know, we had a, a conversation with the critics for a podcast that's coming out soon that it is one of his favorite novels of the year. And he just, you know, made it made it sound exciting. It was sort of a, a literary thriller, whatever that means. I guess it's a thriller that's written well, but also with these, you know, these thematic undertones of uh, climate change and the the way that uh, uh, super rich men are also destroying the world at the same time that climate change is destroying the world. And it's all put through this very wry, somewhat satirical voice that, that Eleanor Catton is, is, is trying out in Burnham Wood. And it really, it just moves quickly. The ending is not what I expected. And the characters are all ridiculous in their own way. And I think it's the way that those characters on this plot of land in New Zealand, this this idealistic group of, of, as she calls them, guerrilla gardeners who are looking for plots of land that are unused or unoccupied and, and planting stuff there. And this very, 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 very rich American who is looking to buy a plot of land that they're interested for his own nefarious reasons, they all smash up against each other and incredible drama ensues. And the thing that I love about Burnham Wood, too, is, yeah, we're talking about climate change. We're talking about class. We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about all of the things that we do as human beings to make things difficult for ourselves and the people around us, right? But, wow, that story was incredibly propulsive. I mean, yes, stuff happens and it moves, but the voice, right? The voice, that wry, smart, like, can you believe? Can you believe this is where we are? And part of why I think that book also really got my attention is it's so different from her first book, mm-hmm. The Luminaries, which was a historical set in 
New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand, and mining and all sorts of things. And it's very long and it's great. And especially if you're a historical fiction fan, you really should read it. But it's so different in timber and tone. And yet thematically, still talking about class and capitalism and growth and the things that we do to each other. And I think that's kind of cool to watch the evolution of a writer. And Daniel Mason is one of the writers that you guys picked for your best 10 of the year. And he's someone who, if you look at the piano tuner, right, and the evolution to North Woods, like, it seems like you guys really, really love North Woods the way I loved North Woods. I really love that book. Many of us did. I think most of us did. The people, you know, there, there were about a dozen, you know, 10 to 14 people at any time in these 10 books of the year discussions that we have weekly in the fall. And North Woods was one of those that uh, someone nominated. All books have to be nominated right. by at least two people, and then we okay. discuss them, and either they move on or they fall out. And uh, Northwoods was dazzling, which is a word that is used often by people who read books to describe books. But I think it qualifies, certainly in this case, because of the way that Daniel Mason is really able to dip in and out of tone, style, genre, voice. For those of you who haven't read Northwoods yet, it is a story of essentially a, p- a piece of land and then a house in Western Massachusetts. And, and it tells the story of the house over 300 years. And each chapter is a different person who either lives in the house or comes into contact with the house. It starts with these two people on the run in, in colonial America who try to settle there. There's an apple farmer. There are two sisters that live there. Uh, there's uh, an enslaved person and someone hunting for them. It comes all the way, I think, almost to modern time. And each of the chapters are told uh, in a different way. Mm -hmm. And and the thing about it is, I was never bored, but on the uh, occasion that you find yourself bored at any one of these chapters, you move on to the next one and you go, wow, I'm I'm back in. I'm rehooked. It didn't happen to me, but I think one of the appeals of Northwoods for all of us who are reading it was that we are constantly surprised and constantly delighted. And I think that's a really good way to describe books in general. Like for us, for our books of the year, our booksellers in all of our stores will submit the titles that they feel most strongly about. And then we put them together and send them back out into the field and say, okay, vote. And you guys let us know. And James McBride is our book of the year for Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. And David Grant is our author of the year. And this is the first time we've done an author of the year. But it's all based on our booksellers, the way you're working off of your editor's expertise and your editor's feelings and your editor's opinions. We're doing the same with our booksellers. And, you know, sometimes that overlaps with what I've done on the show. Sometimes it doesn't. But there's so much space to talk about books, right? Like, even if there isn't necessarily the exact same for you. I mean, I loved Northwoods from the very minute I read it because I just thought it was so weird. But again, really different. I mean, sometimes for me, I'm reading purely in context of what the author's body of work is or where it might fit or can I convince someone not in New York or Los Angeles to really open an eye to something. And you guys have talked about how you do pick your 10, top 10 of the year. And there was some stuff where I was like, absolutely, I get it. Complete, Chain Gang All-Stars, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. I mean, that was one of our Discover finalists. But also, I mean, that book is brilliant. It has a big beating heart. I mean, yes, it's a novel about abolition, but also like you can't separate the story from the characters. You cannot separate the voice from any of it. It's amazing. It might not be the first book 
that some people reach for, but like that felt like a natural pick for you guys. Can you walk us through sort of how that converse or as much of that conversation from your end as you can? I was in most of the meetings. There were some meetings that our deputy ran. So mm -hmm. I, I can give you context on the, on the process as a whole and maybe touch on, on some of the mm -hmm. books as opposed to focusing just on, on chain gang all-stars. So as I, as I literally, it's, it's almost a year long process, right? We are at the book review reading books now as, as are you. Um, that come out in January and February, maybe a little a little past that. And so already, I'm not going to say what the book is, but already there's a book where a couple of editors are like, oh, this might be our first one that we discussed for 2024's top 10 books. And so, you know, we meet monthly starting in about March. People are nominating books. Two people have to nominate a book. We talk about the books. And sometimes those books move through the process. And sometimes... In the room, you can tell that these one or two people out of the 12, 14, however many people really liked it, but there's not a, a groundswell in the room. And all lists, to state the obvious, are subjective. Um, and they are based on the, the person, if it's an individual critic, or the group of people, as in this case, the editors of the book review. You know, you look at all of our competitors, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, just released theirs today. There's some crossover, but there's also uh, books that are unique to those lists. And I think it's dependent on who's in the room. And I, I think it's actually good for discussion because you want to see a range, a variety of books on these on these top 10 lists, as I think we have seen. And that's totally true for us as well. Like we include kids books, we include YA, we include cookbooks. We have Katie Hessel's Art Without Men, which is fun and fantastic and, and wicked smart, but we do also present a little bit more of a range than you got. I mean, you do five fiction, five nonfiction. I did pick up two. I, I moved one book up from my, I, I really need to read this. And it's the next thing I read. I just, I have a little more taping to do for this year and the start of next. And then I get to read all of the things I want to read. So Fireweather, the John Valiant, and also Master Slave, Husband, Wife, the Ilion Wu. Those were the two where I was like, yep. Those need to move yeah. up higher. Well, well let list. me let me take Master Slave Husband Wife sure. as as an example, just to talk uh, for a couple more beats about how the process works. Which is sometimes you'll get a book that comes out at the beginning of the year, and Master Slave Husband Wife came out in January, I believe, or February, certainly one of those months of 2023, and that stood up against all the other you know pieces of narrative nonfiction and and other types of nonfiction that were challenging it to 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 go the distance and so we meet monthly and then in the fall we start to meet weekly for about two hours every single week and the books are coming fast and furious and it's very time intensive because these are books that all of our editors are reading on top of the books that they actually have to assign for their for their day jobs and so often at night on the weekends you're reading you know 600 page biographies hopefully you can get through it if you haven't if you're an editor that hasn't had an opportunity to read some of or most of the book, you know, you're encouraged not to participate in the discussion because it doesn't seem it doesn't seem fair to the book. As we get towards the end of October, which is really when we make our decision. And again, since we're looking ahead, we're not excluding November or, or December books. We take a series of votes every week. We take a series of votes and then there's a final vote. And there are some books that did not make the top 10 that missed by one or two votes. Some of the books that are probably on, on other lists. And those are amazing books. It's just, this is how, these are how the votes came. And I get that. I mean, that happens with us too. I mean, that's just the nature of having everyone participate 
in yeah. a way where also, you know, we're a national organization, right? Like we have people in all 50 states. We are in most major cities. We are opening more stores. Like we're in a place where, you know, even a store in the same city might not choose the same book. And I have this really on the mind because I'm thinking about this too for summer reading. I mean, yeah, we're sitting down and talking in December, but summer reading's, you know, looming. And I have some ideas. And same thing, like books are so personal and we can build community in a way, right? With reading. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this now that you're over on sort of our side of things. Like TV seems like a very different world to me. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but books, like you really, you see it, right? As people respond on social media, you see it when people walk up to each other in a store and say, oh, I love that book so much. I can't believe. And we're seeing it, obviously, with the McBride. I'm a huge fan of McBride's. I loved Good mm -hmm. Lord Bird. I love Deacon King Kong. I just think he's funny and smart and he's hopeful. And when the booksellers came back and were like, oh, this one, I was like, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I mean, I loved the wager too. I thought there would be a little more cannibalism in the wager, but you know. Expectations thwarted. I, maybe I read too many adventure stories when I was a kid. I probably did read Alive when I was a little too young for it. Is that the one uh, in the Peru in the and the Andes? I think they're releasing a new movie version of that or a new TV version. I saw I'm not sure I'm prepared for that. Uh, I, saw, I remember that. That was a very disturbing. I probably saw that when I was 10 years old. Was Ethan Hawke in that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yes. You have seen is, it and it is, it's, it's wild. Up. It's completely wild. But here's the other thing. You go from 100, right? You go from however many submissions you get to the 100. Mm -hmm. And then obviously from the 100, you pull your 10. And I have to say, it's so fun. Like, have you read um, Same Bed, Different Dream, the Ed Park novel? It's I have. I, I read the first 40 pages, the part set in the bar yeah, yeah. in Koreatown, I <laughs> okay. believe. So not, not that much. Okay. Not that much. If you have a chance, right? Because we always have to sort of choose what we're doing. Ed wraps up that 500-page novel and all of the different storylines in a way that's so satisfying. I yelled at the end when I figured out what he had done. I just, I yelled because it was so great. And he's such a good guy. And it's one of these novels, again, it's a genre-busting novel. Mm -hmm. And I was so pleased to see it on the top 100 because it also, you know, it published late in the year and he'd been working on it for a really, really long time. And, you know, it's nice to see writers respond, like Nicole Chung also and you know, you had Poverty by America, the Matt Desmond on there. There's really, there's such a great range of titles. So you're telling me that the process is different for the hundred. And I kind of assumed it was all one giant kind of system because you are pulling the 10 from the hundred. It's not, it's not. Although the 10 always come from the hundred. So, so the 10 is really, uh, uh, the results of, of weeks and weeks of debate and books rise or fall based on the passion, the arguments that are happening in the room. The 100 Notables, which is uh, the other list we publish every at the end of every year, is um, an, an expression of, of the breadth of our coverage over the course of a year. 100 may seem like a lot, but it actually is not that much. We, we review maybe 15, 16, 1700 books a year, and to get to 100 even is pretty hard. So what we do there is we ask um, most people on the desk to um, say the books that they're most passionate about. And no one's arguing against them. You know, once we get all those books in a doc, there are maybe a couple hundred. And then we try to we do try to figure out a little bit of a balance. And so that's more 
to, to be frank, it's more open-hearted. It's, it's, we try to make it broader. We try to make it more representative when it comes to genre, when it comes to type of book, the top 10 is not. So that is constructed. The hundred notables is constructed. The 10 is not constructed. It's not, um, we need a balance here between these type of books, or we need these books to make a statement about the year. It is just what, you know, what, what won the arguments really, what, what were people most passionate about? Whereas the hundred is just, it's just broader. I think it's useful to have both of those because we think, and everyone who does a list of this sort thinks this, we think the books that we put on the 10 are amazing. And we hope that there is a book on there for everyone, but there's only 10 books. It's very possible that you can be a reader, a passionate reader and not find something there for you. I hope you do, but it's possible that you don't, but on the hundred, if you cannot, my friend, I do not know what to tell you. Well, I mean, part of it for me is I like to stretch, right? Like I don't necessarily need to read something that's just going to reinforce something I already believe, right? Would I like to make more time for narrative nonfiction in my life? Yes. Yes, I would. I am many, I'm one of many people who really, like, do I love a Matt Desmond? Absolutely. Was I excited when I saw that Poverty by America was not 500 pages? Sure. Nicole Chung, same thing, A Living Remedy. Like, she's working with really big, important ideas, and it wasn't 600 pages. And that's not to say that some books don't need to be that long. Like, The Beasting by Paul Murray. Biggest surprise for me, I just... It, that book flew and it's oh, it did. 500 it did. something pages. And I had convinced myself that he had not used punctuation in anything because for the wife, he had taken out all the punctuation in her chapters. Mm -hmm. And I had convinced myself on first read that there was no punctuation in the entire novel. And it was really just a device. Dump, but I had bought in so completely. I was like, yep, who needs punctuation? And then I was going back as I was prepping for my interview with him. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I felt the exact same way. I, I was hesitant. Uh, I had a, a, a sense towards the end of the conversations that it, that it was a strong contender. So I knew I had to read it to be able to mm -hmm. talk about it. But no offense to the book, but I was like, this is really long. And I just, I didn't know if I have the time. Ugh. And then I picked it up and same thing. I flew through it. I flew through it. it it's amazing. It's the same thing with movies or TV shows, right? That long things can feel short. Short things can feel long. Uh, it's about the pacing. It's about the voice. It's about the, the the narrative energy. Well, and also trusting the writer. I like to hand myself over to a writer. And especially when you get someone like Ianna Mathis, who's come back with a second novel after, you know, working on it for a while. And, and she said, you know, one of the characters was giving me trouble. That was part of the delay. But to step back into that space with a writer and just say, oh, hi, I've missed you. This is great. I've missed how you see the world. I've, mm -hmm. I've missed how you push me to think in new ways is such a treat. And then you get someone like Zadie Smith. I think we can all agree the fraud is spectacular. I am not a Charles Dickens person. I've been really open about this for a really long time. Like I am just not one of those people who's like, everything needs to come back to the man himself. But that novel, same thing, like The Beast, it moves. It absolutely flies. And I was really pleased to see it on the top 10 because, you know, some people had feelings about it that I was kind of like, did you read the same book I did? Because I don't think you did. <laughs> it's funny. I, I here at the office, we've recommended it to a bunch of people. And we, we've heard from several people who, who have said, yeah, but that wasn't as great as I thought it would be. And we're all like, what the heck are you talking about? Right, I, right. I, I, 
it's so fun. The structure, once you get past the beginning, is not particularly complicated. It's a reminder to us that we can all be in agreement. And then there are people out there who are readers and who we think are very smart who will disagree with us or not just not feel the same thing that we felt when we uh, read the book. Or, or in the case of some listen to the book, we've talked endlessly here at the book review about how the audiobook of of the fraud is is it's great one of the best of the year particularly because she's so good at reading it and also audio helps there are times too where if i'm prepping for a show i will actually read i'll listen to something rather than reread it because i can do it sort of in concert with other things this is one of the secrets maybe that, yeah uh your listeners maybe they know this already but if if part of your job is to read a lot of books all the time part of the cheat is sometimes you listen to them and you read them at the same time one of our editors what does she call it the double dip or something she's like i'm reading a book and then i know i have to go run an errand and so i will put the audiobook on where i left off and then i'll go back to the book and then i'll pick it up on on this device and if you have to constantly read audiobooks have become so useful towards that end there are lots of people who listen to them just for mm -hmm. for pleasure but i think you and i perhaps Listen to it for pleasure and for work because it's helpful. If you haven't listened to the Beastie Boys book from a couple of years ago, that <laughs> that is the audio that you need. Like the Beasties, that really? is just it's a cast of thousand like Colson Whitehead's in there, George Saunders isn't no. Wow. It's like listening to like Lincoln and the Bardo where Saunders will bring in like a cast of thousands. And there are times where and I get to walk to work, so I listen to a lot as I'm as I'm walking. And um it just yeah, the Beasties, and I think that book is like four years old at this point. But huge, huge love for I that. I love book. that. That's a great recommendation. You, you really would love that. But you know, the thing is, too, there are times when, like, a recent book. I'm just thinking of Viet Thanh Nguyen's Man of Two Faces or Land of Milk and Honey, the Sea Pam Jang, which you guys did put on the hundred. Both of those sent me back to Marguerite Duras's The Lover because that was an influence for Pam as she was writing Land of Milk and Honey, and Viet has just written a new introduction for the lover and mm -hmm. replacing his former teacher, Maxine Hong Kingston. And I hadn't read that novel in like a thousand years. And it's very, it's under 200 pages. You can fly through it. And it was kind of trippy going mm -hmm. back to it. It's sort of 15 years after I read it last kind of thing. Do you ever have the opportunity to go chasing after something like this? Or if Dickens is your thing? I mean, Michael Cunningham yeah. sent me after George Eliot and I, I still can't do Middlemarch, but I'm going to try Mill on the Floss. I'm going to try. I, I wish I had more time um, because not only am I reading for work, but I'm also, as you are, reading to interview authors on on the podcast. And I maybe would not be reading that book at that moment if I didn't have to for the podcast. I would read right. it at some other point. But and so, uh, you know, I'm on a track where I cannot divert that much, except or when I, the rare occasions I go on vacation, or now that we're approaching the end of the year and I'll have a week or so off, I will try to pick up a book or two that just have no reason to pick up for work. You know, at some on some vacation this summer, I think I read Shutter Island by Dennis oh, Lehane. Oh, the Dennis Lehane. <laughs> which is, I've, I've seen that movie right. five times. The book mm -hmm. hues pretty closely to the movie, so nothing yeah. was surprising in it, but I wanted to read Dennis Lehane. I wanted to read that book. I picked up Hiroshima because the Oppenheimer movie was coming out and I, I'd never read the, the John Hersey book. There are some great classics that I've never read and I will not admit to on this podcast for fear of embarrassment, but there are the George Eliot's and the other authors of that sort that I will say like, all right, now's the time I have to read 
House of Mirth or whatever it is, you know? I have two copies of Middlemarch. I even bought a copy with French flaps because I thought, well, if it's not ugly, I'll finally pick it up because I've had many, many people say to me, you would love Middlemarch. I thought I was going to read it during the pandemic. Nope, didn't happen. Not yet, not yet. Nope, nope. But I also bought a hand crank pasta maker during the pandemic and I haven't taken that out of the box either. So, uh, uh, you know, there are some things that aren't meant to be. We could, do, we could probably do a whole podcast on pandemic purchases that we only used once. Yeah. Luckily for me, a lot of them were books okay. <laughs> and they did. It's just George Eliot seems to still be like the hill that I can't. And I went through a phase where I loved Graham Greene and I went through, you know, there are certain, mm-hmm. like I read a lot of Le Carre when I was younger and now I'm like, okay, I'm good. Thanks. There were a couple of sort of caper flicks disguised as novels that I really loved this year. Loot by Tanya James, which was long listed for the National Book Award. And also Crook Manifesto, the second Ray Carney from Colson Whitehead, both of which I just thought were fun and interesting ways to talk about, of course, bigger issues, right? Like who gets to make art and what is colonialism and race in America and all sorts of stuff. But ultimately, they're really entertaining reads. And I still love a caper flick. I really mm-hmm. do. Like, I just love reading that kind of stuff. But I would like beautiful sentences as I get it. Is there something that you sort of reach to, not just in terms of the review, but like when you have a spare minute or something that you think, oh, this would be great for the review. This is something we'd like to play with a little more. We know that there are a ton of people who are passionate about books out there who maybe never read the New York Times book review because of the image in their head of what they think the New York Times book review is or the type of person that reads the New York Times book review is. And that has to do with the types of books that we cover. And I, as I, I think I said earlier, I come from a place when, when I was reading, I was reading scary books and to me, a book or, uh, or a movie or a TV show, really any piece of art that excites my heart, that gets my heart racing it is always going to be the thing that I'm going to be looking for. One of the books that we put on the cover of the book review this summer, which maybe we wouldn't have done in the past was a book called whale fall by Daniel Krauss that our deputy editor loved, that our thriller columnist Sarah Lyle loved, and then I loved. And it's a book about a guy who gets swallowed by a whale, and he has an hour to get out before he suffocates. That's the book. I mean, there's other stuff in there about his dead dad, maybe not surprisingly, but it's uh, it's thrilling and it's compact. That's just, for me, always the thing that I'm going to be chasing. It's the reason I watch horror movies, because I want to see something I've not seen before, or I want to turn the TV off or walk out of the movie theater feeling as if I'm going to have a heart attack, knowing that that feeling is going to pass. But it's the, it's the, the, to me, the reason that I always love experiencing art in whatever form is because it puts you into another world. It puts you into another mindset. It puts you into another era, or it does physically does something to my body that I do not experience most of the time, which is, um, it makes my heart race. I, I love that feeling. I love that if feeling. If you ever get tired of this editing thing, you could have a job as a bookseller. I'm just saying. Like, if you want to come over to this side of things, that's exactly <laughs> what we get to do every single day. That sounds like a great job. That yeah, like it really job. is. It really is. I think anything we can do to bring people to books, yeah, right, is the thing that we should be doing. Like, I do get excited when I see long lists and short lists and like any chance we have to say, hey, listen, we do a cool thing. Come hang mm-hmm. out with us. Like whether it's a caper flick kind of novel like Loot by Tanya James or Crook Manifesto or, you know, certainly 
There's so much other stuff. I'm looking off of like crazy notes here. Um, really, really, really long notes. And then sometimes you go, oh, that's missing. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about the books that are missing because, again, it goes back to what's really personal. Yeah. And who's in the room and what we're trying to do. So the idea of broadening opportunities for people to encounter books, right? Like that's part of the fun of the newspaper. There's serendipity. You're flipping through the newspaper and you can stumble on a story that you might not otherwise see. Right. And it's the same thing with the front of a bookstore, the back of a bookstore, the third floor of a bookstore. You just have a chance to trip over something. And it's that moment of serendipity that's really hard to recreate out in the world, right? It used to be easy to recreate in a newspaper, a print newspaper. It mm -hmm. is somewhat easier to recreate in a physical bookstore. It's terribly difficult when it comes to digital journalism. Because so much of digital journalism is what are you specifically looking for, not what are you accidentally running across. And one of the things that I hope we can do better at the book review over the next few years is acknowledge the reality that most passionate readers have, which is you're reading frontless and backless at the same time, new stuff and old stuff. And I spoke to someone I work with a couple of weeks ago who says, I usually wait a couple of years before reading books on your, on your 10 list. Um, oh, for, okay. For some, that's interesting. They're always a little bit behind into them. And that's fine. A, cause they, they don't buy a ton of hardcovers. They wait for it in paperback. Mm -hmm. It's on their hold list at the library. It's always worth remembering that not everyone is buying in hardcover. Hardcovers are expensive. A ton of people buy books in paperback, Absolutely. which is another moment for discovery or, or they go to their library. And so acknowledging that maybe Next February, someone will finally get to tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow, even though it's a year and a half old, at the same time that they're going to be reading a new book that comes out in February. And that both of those things are true, both of those things are valid, and how can we, as a, as a publication that covers books, uh, reflect that reality in our coverage? It's challenging. I don't know that we've figured it out yet, but it's something that, that we're thinking about. It's really good to hear, because that's something we think about all the time, too. I mean, paperbacks are the perfect format. Don't get me wrong. I love, I, I'm surrounded by paperbacks yeah, and hardcovers behind me. It's not, I am, <laughs> we are format agnostic in my world, but at the same time, paperback, you can slide it in your pocket. You can slide it in your bag. It's really easy. You know, they're not heavy for the most part. I do. It's a format I've always loved. Like I had a thing for vintage contemporaries when I was young and I had all mm. of those crazy, you know, pastel-y, very eighties kind of jackets and obviously design has evolved, but yeah. yeah, I mean, but that's how I discovered Tom McGuane and Barry Hanna and like, you know, all mm -hmm. of these writers who in a way became foundational for me as a baby bookseller. And right. then you get, you know, sort of very pretty editions of Cormac McCarthy and Amy Town and all of that kind of stuff. It's really kind of great. Hey, is there something that you're really super stoked about for next year? Or are you still deep in the end of this year? I'm still, so we just published these various lists a week or two ago. And so I, I literally up to the last minute was reading the books on our 10 list. And so I'm sort of read out at the mm -hmm. moment. I need to to pick back, get back on the horse in a week or two, but I've hit the wall. I have not read anything coming out in 2024 yet, uh, sadly. I'm not going to say it on the air, but I think I know which one. I think I might be as excited about a book that your editors are already thinking about for your top okay. 10 for next I'd, year. I'd be, you tell me after the recording. I, I will, <laughs> actually, because I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right about it. And I'm, I'm personally very excited about it, too. I am going to toss this other Eden your way, the Paul Harding. Did you read Tinkers? Oh, uh, 
I did not read Tinkers, but I okay. did read um, on a flight. I read this this other Eden. Okay, Which, good. I'm glad to hear that because it yeah. was really beautiful. And I mean, what he does with Maine and the whole New England thing and mm-hmm. his sense of place, like place for me folds into voice, right? Like yeah. they, you can't separate the two. And it's just, it's so beautiful, that book. And it's about to come out in paperback, which is why I'm mentioning it. Justin Torres came back with Blackouts this year. I meant to mention him in the context of Iana Mathis. I mean, it's always so much fun to see a writer come back after a little bit of time. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, Eleanor Kenton before it had been a decade since we had, we had seen her, which is, she was living a full life. She wrote a screenplay Mm -hmm. for the Emma movie, did a lot of other things, but a decade is a long time. I was very, very happy to, to see her back. It is a long time, but I always think of it as a chance for new readers Mm. to come to a writer. I mean, like we've been saying throughout this episode, it's not the first touch. Like James McBride has been writing novels for a really long, but his memoir, Color of Water, came out uh, late 90s. Sure. And as I was reading Heaven and Earth, prepping for the show we did in August, I was like, this character really reminds me of his mom. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he finally wrote a novel about his mom. And, you know, there was a biography in between there and a collection of stories and Miracle at St. Anne. Like, all of that's a National Book Award for yeah. um, Good Lord Bird. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, this is kind of groovy. I get where we are with this book. <laughs> one of the editors on our desk on one of our podcasts uh, this summer ta- talked a bunch about The Color of Water, which I believe was a book I read when I was a late teen or in my early yeah. 20s. It was gifted to me by an aunt. And, and honestly, until this year, I had forgotten that it was the same person that wrote it. I was like, I think I read that book. Wait. Oh, James McBride wrote that book? Holy moly. And But that's the fun, right? The discovery. It's It doesn't matter when it hits your desk. It doesn't matter when. I mean, yeah, is it nice to help someone sell their new book? Yes, of course it is. But it's also just really nice to introduce a reader to something that's going to make their head explode. I mean, that's part of the whole fun of all of it. It's just like, well, how can I make you think, huh, where's this been all my life? I love when we can do that. I love when you can do that. I and Honestly, just... I just wish I had more time to to read older books. I feel a little bit cheated in that I have a job that's devoted to books and I do not have time to read all the books I want to read. What's going on? I think that's everyone. I mean, listen, I know plenty of booksellers who have TBR lists that are taller than me. <laughs> and I'm just like, I love you guys, but don't you worry. I mean, all of this has actually been read. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is actually material that I go back to um, when I'm prepping for shows and things like that. And then there's also stuff too where it's just, you know, I like to learn. I just, I didn't really understand this about myself when I was younger, but I should have done more independent study <laughs> and it just never occurred to me. And now I'm just kind of like, well, I can go down all of the rabbit holes. Well, so that's what fun. you're doing now. Exactly. Anyway, Gilbert, it was really good to see you. Let's do this again for summer reading. Yeah. Cause we could just do this a lot. For a Absolutely. Time. Thank you for having me on from this anonymous room I'm calling in from. Uh, <laughs> have a good holiday season. You too. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.